Good morning again. Thank you for the good morning back. Uh, if you're visiting, my name is Peter. I serve as the lead pastor of the Springs. Uh, today we kick off a new series that we'll be doing in conjunction with our sister church in Austin, Mosaic Church. Uh, it's a study in the book of John. It's a series entitled, For the Love. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet with me to honor God's word. We'll get started with the book of John. Gospel account of John, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's a rhyme that goes with that. I forgot. But we're in John chapter 1, verse 1, goes like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, verse 3 says. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, please add a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word. Help us to go way beyond our thoughts and feelings and expectations of what church is going to be like and what our life is going to be like and what our Sunday is going to be like. Lord, that's how you move in us anyway. Willing and working. And we're inviting a, a special openness and asking for you to open ears and to shine your light on, on our understanding as we go through your word. Your word that pre-existed our culture and that long after America is America, you will be here and moving Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never. And so, Jesus, I'm asking that you would help us. We live because you lived before us, and you ever lived to make intercession for the saints. And we love because you first loved us. And so help us to see you more clearly today and to be like you. For the sake of your glory, for the sake of the joy of the nations. Amen. In all of John's writings, and especially here in his gospel, he writes every bit as deeply as he does explicitly. He, he writes very uniquely from the other writers in the Bible. He, he writes with real simple words, and yet with great passion and repetition. 
the next two weeks, our big idea is this, that we are to know that Jesus, the God-man, fully displays love, life, and light. John wants us to know this. He knew a lot of things, and when he comes out of the gate writing about the gospel of Jesus, according to him, he comes right out of the gate and says some explicit things in ways that the other gospel writers don't necessarily say the way he says it. He wants us, first and foremost, to know that Jesus is the God-man that fully displays love, life, and light. Now this week, I'm going to cover the first two topics, getting through the, the bookends of what's called the prologue of John 1, the start and finish of the introduction to the gospel account, where we're going to see uh, love and light, those two themes really drawn out, and why that's important. Next week on Campus Sunday, Alberto's going to come and preach about how Jesus, the God-man, is light, and light in the darkness of the campus, light in the darkness of your work, light in the dark moments of your family, he is light. Now, let's get to love. Jesus, the God-man, fully displays love. Now, before I point out how this is seen, whether you initially saw it or not, in verse 1, and then a lot towards the end of our passage as well, how Jesus fully displays love. Let me just build some context for the background of John's life before anything else. Because understanding uh, the transformation in John helps us to understand why this man would write like this. John was a fisherman. We know he's the son of Zebedee. And Jesus met him in the middle of his mess, before he ever kind of figured his calling out, Jesus met him where he was. And by the end of the time where he writes this gospel account, we know he's probably an old man in his 80s. So what happened in his life between when he was probably a teenager when Jesus met him, to the point where he's in his 80s writing some of the most profound things ever put on, put on a piece of paper, or papyrus, or whatever? What happened in his life? The answer to that question is, he was transformed by the love of God. He was wrecked by the love of God all up in his business, loving away his mess and his excuses and his dirtiness. He was transformed by the love of God. He's referred to in the gospel accounts as uh, one of the sons of thunder, There's a story where he and his brother James, also the son of Zebedee, were encountering someone opposing Jesus. And in the face of opposition to Jesus, he reacted according to his flesh. And knowing a little bit about Jesus' power, he says, Jesus, should we we call down fire on this guy? His go-to response for uh, disagreement was worse than, than you and me and our friends on Facebook. He wanted to call down fire from heaven. Uh, That was a lot of faith, but not a whole lot of understanding of the love and the redemptive plan of God. He said, I want to call down fire. He was a man that was a son of thunder, rightly named. He was aggressive, probably a little bit rude. But by the time he's 80 years old, after seeing the transformation in his life of this Jesus who 
was supposed to be the Messiah and kind of take over the world and like conquer the Romans, right? But it went differently than he thought. This Jesus died and rose again to conquer the enmity in the world from the inside out. And this love clicked and made sense and gave power to this John, transforming him to be more aggressive in his love than he ever was in his external power. And with this love, he was able to minister to people and and gain renown and power and see signs and wonders and miracles done through his hands and his words, things that are still available to us that we can aspire to and ask God for, for his kingdom. John saw it all. He was so fascinated as he grew, not fascinated with the things he was able to do, the miracles, but increasingly fascinated the older he got by the fact that he was ever loved in the first place. Five times when he writes in the Gospel of John, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. See, what prompted John to write this Gospel account was his growing fascination that God ever loved him in the first place. He would never say, look, I'm this, this powerful elder, this, this evangelist. They called him the elder, the evangelist. It's like a, kind of another way of calling him the super apostle. So that I'm never going to take those, those labels that are put on me by the world and through the, the great things they see. The pinnacle of greatness is this love that met me in the middle of my mess and the secret things that I was into that all these people that respect me don't understand, this love, he loved me. He was so fascinated by the love of Jesus that he wanted us to not miss a beat. John wanted us to start or begin where he left off at the end of his life. And that's a That's a beautiful example of leadership in general. For your life and your life's purpose, if you can connect with the love of God to the degree that you advance the kingdom of God and the flow and power and dominion of his love on the earth in your life, and then through your life, set up others to launch off from your shoulders, not having to go back and learn all the same lessons that you learn, but to start where you finish. What a well-lived life. It doesn't matter what your career or all the other things or where you live, all the other things that we tend to worry about. If you can live a life that connects so deeply to the love of God that it penetrates deep in your soul and you extend the borders of the kingdom of the love of God to places where it has not yet gone to the degree that others come up behind you and extend it from there, what else is there to live for? That's what John wanted to do. He writes so explicitly in this prologue coming right out of the gate using really controversial, abrupt words because he wants you to start where he left off. He had so much influence and yet so much fascination with this Jesus who loved him in the beginning. It says his life likely ended because he had so much influence through the love of God and the kingdom where he would lead people to Christ who were powerful, violent marauders, Roman officials, renowned Jews 
he was leading everyone to Christ by the power of God's love, that it was starting to overtake Asia Minor, uh, what's the, the area which, which is now modern-day Turkey. Uh, he was kind of like an apostle in the city of Ephesus in particular. And the Roman officials just said, look, we can't shut this guy up. He's, he's gaining so much influence to where it's kind of, uh, there, there's, we have some national security interests to kill this man. So they took John and boiled him in oil. And he survived. I have only to think that it, it was probably painful. I don't know. But he survived this. And they said, man, you can't kill him like this. Let's just kind of stick him on an island. They stick him on the island of Patmos. And he starts writing these things. He wrote John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, likely Revelation, from my understanding, from the island of Patmos. And he starts out and wants us to start out where he left off at the end of his life. In the beginning was the word. He starts out with these huge, abrupt words. First of all, in the beginning echoes the the cherished Hebrew language from Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so he here says, in the beginning was the word. See, see he's... he's, uh, uh, allowing his words to equally defend Jews and Greeks. He's offending them both. He's saying, this Jesus is the fulfillment of Jewish origin. In the beginning was the word. And this word, the word, in the Greek was this sacred, untouchable, don't mess with this word or you will die type of word. He said, in the beginning was the logos. The logos means the perfect the ideal. According to Platonic thought for about two centuries, you did not use this word except to describe the the most amazing, perfect, untouchable, unmaterial thing. So for him to say, in the beginning was the word, and basically say God is the logos, God is the perfect and ideal, that might not have offended every Greek, but most. And by the time in verse 14 where he says, this logos, this word, became flesh and dwelt among us. You've just gone ahead and wrote your own death sentence by saying that. He's saying this Jesus is God. He wants us to start with the same powerful, not just love as we define it, but eternal God-divine love that he ended up on. He didn't want us to go through the embarrassing years of misunderstanding like he did early in his life. I mean, he walked with Jesus for three years with misunderstanding about who he was and doing and saying things and taking things for granted. I mean, it's the same pain that we're susceptible to now, that Jesus can be right in your midst and you miss it. The only thing worse than being separated from the love and the life of God is being present with the love and life of God through other people, through his church, and missing it, ignoring it, taking it for granted. He did that for years, and he didn't want us to go there. He wanted us to begin in the beginning where he left off. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the word was with God. Now it says both of these things. This is, 
This is me all the way getting back to what does verse 1 have to do with how Jesus fully displays the love of God. We've seen it contextually through transforming a man like John. And if he can transform a man like John, he can transform your life and mine. I don't know what your personality disposition is, but God does. Why? Well, according to his word, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, which is it? It says that this logos, this perfect and ideal, he he was with God, and he was God. And some will argue, trying to uh, make a controversial verse kind of more palatable, they'll argue that maybe there's not an article in the Greek there. It doesn't say, in the beginning was a God, but I've heard some people say nonsense, like, well, it's an intended Greek article. So it's kind of intended that it's supposed to say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. No, it doesn't say that. It says, in the beginning was the Word. He was with God, and he was God. This brings about this mystery of the triune nature of God, this three-in-one Godhead, this, this God who is Father and this God who is Son, who is God and is with God, he is the perfect and ideal, who nonetheless became flesh at some point in history, but he eternally has been God, and eternally in a love relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Three people, not three gods, one God. If you fully understand that, uh, then come talk to me after the service because it's supposed to give you a little bit of a headache. It's supposed to be above your mind. The love of God is greater than us. The identity of God, He, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is also greater than our thoughts and our mind and our experience. So much so that the weightiness of who He is is meant to redirect our persons, our passions, our desires, our plans. The love of God is here to transform you like it transformed this violent son of thunder writing this book. God has eternally been God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now trying to resolve this mystery is a thing that's been attempted for millennia. Right from the very start, the seeds of this Arianism heresy. Uh, it's, it's really three different gods. Or it's just one god. It's just kind of three different uh, people. You know, this attempt to resolve one god, three persons, has been in the works since the beginning. It has different names. You could... In the 7th, 6th century, it was Islam. Then it was Jehovah's Witness. There's a lot of attempts to, to undo what is very mysterious and yet clear. Mysterious and yet clear. When John writes, everything he writes, I've heard one uh, scholar say, John's writing in the Greek could not be more simple. And yet at the same time, John's writing in the Greek could not be more weighty. Think about that. He says things about God that are so weighty and glorious 
explicitly comes right out of the gate in the beginning. Jesus. Yes. You can kill me if you want, but I'm good because I know all about this Jesus. He owns everything. I'll be good. Boil me. Put me on a different island. I'm good. In the beginning, Jesus. Also, I'll tell you in a few books, in the end too, Jesus. He was so wrapped in this love. Why? I'm spending, purposefully spending a lot of time here because the more that you know that God's love in and of himself that doesn't need you and me, doesn't need you to love him back, that God's love in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit was so complete without us, didn't need to create us, but chose to spill out on creation, and then chose to spill out on redemption. When you connect with that, your purpose for life is unlocked. You, you don't need to know necessarily, you know, what am I supposed to do with my life? How am I supposed to live? How do I love this person back and, you know, when they're being a mean, meanie head to me? Those things are of lesser importance. The better that you can connect with the eternal love that pre-existed creation and time, the love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that fully is perfect in and of himself, the better you can connect with that, the more redemptive your life will look. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, verse 2 says, was in the beginning with God. His love is pre-existent to our attempts at love. I'm going to do my best to explain how this works out in principle in my midst, being very careful to draw any illustration about how the, the, the perfect love of God projects upon humanity and creation and redemption. But it plays out too when my children are compelled to go in love by seeing the love that I have for my wife. Again, my love for my wife is imperfect in comparison with God's. But the same principle plays out that they are compelled by the fullness of my love for my wife, they're compelled to go and live meaningful lives of love in the right way. So, uh, again, with my background, I, I grew up a religious hypocrite, not, not loving God, loving myself, and not even having the capacity to do so rightly. Vain living, normal. I get to high school my first year completely perverted, but maybe just a little bit less than the perverse baseball players on my team, so I thought I'm good because they're dirtier than me, I guess. Somehow it didn't make myself feel clean. And I get to high school, and I'm led to Christ by a student-led campus ministry in, my, uh, in a math teacher's classroom. And from that point, by receiving the love of God that loved me in my mess, I was able to see with new eyes love and love for other people and distinguish for the first time, especially as it related to beautiful young women, distinguish at least between love and lust. Uh, have new weapons to fight the wrong kind of uh, view of my old life with how God was redefining my eyes and my delight in him and others. And so uh, then I found 
this pretty girl who became my wife. That's the end of the story, really. I won't have to talk about the middle years where she wasn't as impressed with me. You know, she wasn't really into me like I was into myself. A um, few years of rejection, a few years of waiting. Uh, seven years later, we got married. And that's last 12 years, we've been married. And now fast forward to this last year, our five-year-old daughter, our third child, is looking at kind of how life works and kind of how her life's supposed to work. And she is seeing the love that we have for each other and thinking about her own life in the future. And she says to her mom a few weeks ago, she says, so mom, you and daddy met each other in high school and you loved your chudders, each other. You loved your chudders and then you got married and had, had us? And my, mom's, my wife says, yeah, yeah, that's exactly how it works. She says, okay, I think when I'm older, I'm going to go into town and find a husband and bring him home so he can build a house <laughs> right next to you. Um, she's starting to understand that her life in the future should be envisioned by what she's seen from God's design in our home. And I said that this is an imperfect illustration because when Jesus went into town to find his bride, he didn't do so because he had any sort of need for love. And, and like I had a need to be loved and find my, my wife and wait for her, right? Or like Alma is going to need to wait on God for her husband. She doesn't need to go into town to find him, but we'll, we'll clean that up later. But when God came to us, when he created us and when he redeems us, he doesn't do so from a place of need, but a place of fullness. There's perfect love in the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and he creates us. And we can live lives that we can see and savor the love of God. And out of the fullness of his glory, we can project the love on the world. It says here twice at the end of our passage, full of grace and truth. Now, that's a remarkable paradox of virtues. I mean, imagine if we as a church were uh, just take those words at, at value in, in the English, grace and truth. Imagine if we had a tr- as a church didn't choose to be a little bit more grace to the expense of truth and not telling people the truth about God's word and sin and things like that. We'd be missing it. We'd be missing on the other end too if, if, if we were just all about truth but no grace. Like we just stood up here, look, you're all going to hell without Jesus. You're wicked sinners. True, not grace. But actually when it says full of grace and truth, one scholar I read says that this is likely meant to echo an old phrase from Exodus 34 that God's steadfast love, hesed, and faithfulness emit. When Jesus is full of grace and truth, he's full of steadfast love and faithfulness. And from his love, we are meant to be washed and capacitated to love him back and to love others rightly. And without which, we're just trying and trying is lying. When we're full of his love and his grace and truth, we can be full of purpose. Jesus, think about this, was so able to come into the earth, see what is not love, what is not grace and truth and faithfulness, to see the evil in the world. Think about this. And he was never shocked. He was never triggered. 
He never had to write some weird post like passive aggressive. It's disgusting. He wasn't brought off of his rocker. He never compromised his faithfulness and truth. He just loved deeper and more sacrificially. Let that soak in for a second. And I dare you to compare that to your disposition and mine. Think about our culture today. Our culture today is at least a product of you and me. Okay, so this is us. We don't seem to be a culture that overflows as much with steadfast love and faithfulness. And if anything, we're shocked by hatred and we respond with hatred. Hating hatred is not loving. It's not steadfast love and faithfulness. Being in a state of disgusted outrage at the evils of our sinful culture, whether it's the religious evils or the racist or the, the secular evils of our culture, that's not compassion and long-suffering. It's not sacrifice. We seem to know what we hate in this generation, and we have protests and counter-protests, and everyone has, is an expert on what we hate. But it's not loving. It's not a plan to love. I feel like this kind of like uh, layover from the last sentiment of our election. Remember how it went like, oh, who are you voting for? Oh, I don't know, but I hate him. So her, I guess. Or the other way around. Who are you voting for? Oh, I don't know, but I hate her. So him, I guess. That's why the soldiers died. Jesus does better than that. He does better than we do. He's not just an expert on what he hates. He knows what is apart from his love so much so that he's willing to sacrifice. Not shocked. He doesn't come to you and say, I can't believe you would have that attitude. No, he says, I know. I know. My love's enough. He comes to love us and in the fullness of his love, we have grace upon grace. Jesus is the God-man that fully displays love. And then secondly, I'll be quicker with this one. He fully displays life. These verses literally share the meaning of life. You know what? One thing that secularism gets right, the ism, is that the meaning of life is intimately connected to the origin of life. So in in one sense, secularism asks the right question. What is the origin of life? It's just, we need to get the answer right. John in his writing leaves no suspense. I mean, if you you were to write in a way that's kind of like, okay, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag later. No, he doesn't doesn't do it that way, though. It'd be okay if he kind of wrote with suspense. There's no suspense. He starts out, hey, look, Jesus is God. He's full of love and life. So let's, let's deal with that. And let's wash in that. He says Jesus is the author of life. And we can know two things about life really quickly. That he's the author of life and he's the redeemer of life. Verse 14, from his fullness or his generous bounty, we've received grace upon grace. Now here's one thing I, I believe this means. This is my opinion. When it says we've received grace upon grace, we've received the first grace of being in existence at all. 
the grace of life, that he's the author of our life, and the grace that he's the sustainer of our life. It's what theologians call common grace. The grace that we take for granted. The grace that he gives us air to breathe when we breathe in and we breathe out blasphemy. He still gives us grace to breathe because he's the author of life and the sustainer of life. And even though we use that air to rebel against him, he still gives us the grace to redeem us. Grace upon grace. And let's see what these verses say first just about him being the number one author of life. Jesus pre-exists creation. Before he ever created us, he was. That's important to know. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. And then verse 3, all things were made through him. Now, someone coming and knocking on your door will tell you, okay, well, what that means is that, you know, Jesus was an angel. He wasn't really God. And everything was made through him because God used an angel to, you know, create the world. No, it doesn't leave us with that because the next, the next, you don't even have to know Greek to know what it says next. It says, without him was not anything made that was made, including the angels. So he pre-exists all creation. He is the full author of life. In him was the fullness of life. Or as Paul says in Colossians 1. That's not Colossians. Oh, there we go. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things Hold together. It can't be much more clear than that. Jesus pre-exists creation. Then, then he goes on creating anyway. Verse 3, all things were made through him. In him was life, and life was the light of men. The Amplified Bible says it this way. In him was life and the power to bestow life. I love how he says that. The power to bestow life. In the middle of this, Jesus' cousin says that Jesus came before me, even though we know that Jesus was at least a few months younger than John in the flesh. What he's saying is Jesus pre-existed creation and therefore has the power to bestow life. What happened with that life? When we receive the life, when his life in us becomes flesh, in our flesh, what do we do with it? We sin against God. We sin against others. We use our flesh out of selfishness. We define ourselves according to ourselves instead of according to our maker. And when we wrongly define our lives and ourselves, we do the most vile of wicked things. God's creation became flesh in us and we rebel against God and we bring death and depravity into creation. The author of life creates us. We take his life and we use it for death. That's what we do with his life. But the same eternally pre-existent God that has the power to bestow life also has the power to redeem life because Jesus is the author of life and he's the redeemer of life. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, 
Glory as the, the only son of the Father, full of grace and truth. I love how John says this. He is the only son of the Father. It doesn't say son of Mary. In John's writings, no one more than John declares not the humanity of Jesus, but the divinity of Jesus. No one would have known more than John about, John's, about Jesus' humanity. He spent three years with Jesus. He likely spent decades with his mom, caring for his mom. Could have asked him any question about Jesus growing up. Hey, what are the silly things he said when he was two? He could have asked any of those things, and yet he wants us to know Jesus is the life He's the author of life and the redeemer of life. The word became flesh. He dwelt among us. We see his glory. From his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. Verse 16 says, it says the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. Meaning the law through Moses at least tells us why we've defiled life in our flesh. It tells us the basics. If you don't know why you need forgiveness, then the sweetness of Jesus' redemption is not going to taste the sweet as it, does, it should. Moses shows us the law. The rest of this Bible shows us where we go wrong, but it shows us where Jesus makes things right. The word became flesh, and when he became flesh, born of a virgin, Conceived of the Holy Spirit, he did not step into any defilement. He lived the perfect life, the life we should have lived. I heard a gospel creed say it, said it this way. We, we like to say, the gospel is the good news that God became man in Jesus Christ. He lived the life that we should have lived. And he died the death that we should have died in our place. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead, proving that he is God and gaining the power to offer eternal life and salvation and redemption to anyone who would turn and, and repent and turn to him and believe in his name. You and I don't live the life we're supposed to live. We live lives at best often of, of hatred. We live in our flesh, but he lived the life that we were supposed to live and he nonetheless, even though his life earned him eternal life, Never had to die. He chose to die the death that we should have died. Jesus, when he lived on earth, fully displayed what life with the Father is supposed to be. What it's supposed to be like to hear his voice and to live the fullness of joy and life and, and not to live with any of the confusions about who you are and what you're made for. He lived in perfect unity in the love of the Father. What a life to live. In his life, he showed us what life is supposed to be. But in his death, he shows us and displays what separation from God looks like as he hung on the cross. And he rose again from the dead because the fullness of his love and his life conquers the emptiness of our depravity and our death. Let me read this one last thing before I close. John, at the end of this book, writes a few things about why he writes this in the first place. He says, uh, Jesus did a lot of other things besides this. But verse 31, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that by believing you might have life in his name. Jesus loves. So he, he comes to live the life we should, should have lived and die the death that we should have died. Raises to new life so that in believing in him, it says, that we might have life. Now I want to close with this question. Why is it that simply believing in Jesus is all we have to do to have this life? It's almost like not fair, like all, these other, all the other religions, there's at least some kind of sort of impressive religious feat we're supposed to perform. But this just believing, is that cheap? Does that mean this is kind of like a cheap faith? Why is believing all that we have to do to have life? The answer is because Jesus has done everything else. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we consider your word in the coming weeks and as we consider the implications that there will be people here that connect to growth groups for the first time so that we can be sent for the love of what you've done in us to our neighbors to do risky things in the city, uh, adventurous things with our growth groups, adventurous things that you've called us to do, to be full of your love and to spill it out. As we endeavor to move forward, I'm asking that not a single person here miss what you're doing. Lord, I'm fully aware that I've, I've uh, on that clock back there, I've, I've gone a few minutes over and Maybe some people in here, their attention's kind of maybe not here still. And... But Lord, according to your word, you're the one who sustains time and human lives. And even right now, you can speak more strongly to people who need to connect with your love and your life than our anxieties can about what we're supposed to do with this moment. So I pray, Lord, that not a single thing would be missed. If there are people, even as we're bowing our heads and closing our eyes, if there are people who need to, to have an honest prayer, Jesus, I believe in you, save me, make me new. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would make it happen right now. Lord, that we would be transformed by your love to see your kingdom revival happen from this moment. We invite you into our lives. Just say, Holy Spirit, I invite you. Do what you want in me. And everybody said, Amen. Would you stand to your feet with me?